Welcome to the Sober and Happy Podcast, where we talk all things recovery-related, how to navigate the challenges that we'll face along the way on our journey towards our best lives, and how we could go from living a life of simply just being sober to a life where we're both sober and happy. One of the more common questions I see on various recovery forums is, can I get sober without AA? Having spent several years in the beginning of my sobriety in AA and watching the majority of people that come through the doors not stay sober, I have to wonder if we're asking the right question. If you were shopping for a car and the dealership down the road, let's call it Bill's Auto, were selling cars that broke down within the first year 90 to 95% of the time, would you ask yourself, can I get a reliable car if I stop buying from Bill's Auto? Of course not. You would look for other places to buy a car. So why, with AA's low success rate, are we still setting it as the standard in the recovery world? I have spent many years struggling in AA, many more years researching some of the reasons why so many other people struggle in AA, and have experienced massive growth since leaving and applying different methods to my recovery, and that is what we're going to talk about today. So buckle up, this is going to be a great episode. Why is it that we ask if AA is the only solution when if you look at the numbers, we should actually be asking if it is a solution at all? I want to pause here and say, if you're going to Alcoholics Anonymous and it is working for you, I'm not trying to talk you into leaving AA. Keep doing what works for you. However, however, if you have tried various 12-step programs and have not been able to stay sober or you're sober but are not living a life that makes you happy with being sober... I want to let you know that it may not be that you are doing anything wrong. It may simply be that AA is not the right solution for you. There are no official statistics on the success rate of AA. You may hear people in meetings quote the statistics from the big book that claims a 75% success rate. However, those numbers are not only very outdated and of a very small sample size, but seem to have a misleading statement that might have allowed them to skew the numbers to their advantage. The statement reads, of all alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, 50% got sober at once and remained that way, 25% sobered up after some relapses, and among the remainder, those who stayed on with AA showed improvement. In much of the literature around Bill Wilson, you will learn that he loved to brag and also tended to exaggerate a little. We looked at the first sentence, it states, of alcoholics who came to AA and really tried, which means they broke the people that came into AA into two categories when considering the success rate, people that really tried and those that didn't. I could see them doing the tallies in a business meeting. What about John? He keeps relapsing. Yeah, let's not count him since I don't think he is really trying. If we look at studies done, most put the success rate at between 5 to 10% today. These range from independent studies all the way to analyzing chip sales at the Dallas AA central office to see how quick the decline is from 30-day chips all the way up to multiple years. And if you want to do your own non-scientific study, go to an AA group's birthday meeting and follow the people that get 30-day chips through the months. You'll see the drastic drop-off as it progresses to 60 and then 90 days and then 6 months and a year. 
If you take a step back and actually watch the people that come in and out of the rooms, instead of listening to the propaganda, you'll quickly see that most people that come in the door looking for help do not stay sober. I think I only missed a few birthday meetings in the five plus years of my first home group, so I saw this firsthand. So despite that, why do we even ask ourselves, can I get sober without Alcoholics Anonymous, when we really should be asking, why are we still trying to get sober with Alcoholics Anonymous? Let's circle back to the car dealership analogy. You go there, buy another car, drive it out into the parking lot, and it breaks down again. You curse the car and walk back and buy another car off the lot, and it breaks down again. Would we ask ourselves, can I get a reliable car if I stop shopping at this dealership? Would we allow the salesman to convince us the car broke down because we didn't want it to keep running bad enough? Of course not. But why do people still flock to 12-step recovery meetings convinced that it is their only chance of recovery? I personally went to AA because that is what I was told to do in creating a plan after graduating from rehab. I was told that if I didn't go to meetings, I would likely relapse and I desperately wanted to stay sober, so I followed their advice. Don't get me wrong, there's a lot of things I loved about Alcoholics Anonymous. It gave me the structure I craved, I loved the support, I enjoyed hearing stories of inspiration, and I found that generally I felt better after leaving a meeting than I did before I came into one. But there were also things that I struggled with that I have since found were legitimate concerns. The first is, with the general idea that we are completely powerless, addiction is a chronic diagnosis that is battled one day at a time and must be treated constantly with the various parts of the program. When I left rehab, I was absolutely terrified to drink again. In the final months of my drinking, my suicidal thoughts that had been lingering for years had turned into actively planning my suicide. I knew if I relapsed, the chances were very high that I would follow through on those plans. So the fear tactics that are often used in meetings fed into my personal fears. I'd hear people say things like, people that leave AA drink, and to drink is to die. Fear and pain is a great motivator. In fact, it is the primary motivator for most people to get sober. However, we cannot stay motivated by fear alone. The other motivator is pleasure, and we must begin to find pleasure in our lives and enjoy that without fear to propel us to a place beyond our past lives of addiction. In AA, even when I'd be proud of how well I was doing, I'd be warned not to get too comfortable because alcoholism is cunning, baffling, powerful, and patient, and the second I get too confident or let my guard down, I was in trouble. When we remind people constantly of the dangers lurking around every corner, we're creating an environment that is always triggering the fight-or-flight instinct, which creates a constant state of anxiety. That is why so many people simply give up, because the fight to stay sober seems like it is too much. Studies in psychology find that the impact of our beliefs and expected outcomes have a strong impact on whether or not they will come true. If you repeat something to yourself long enough, the more likely it'll come true. Alcoholics Anonymous is full of negative self-fulfilling prophecies. The first thing you are told in 12-step programs is that you are powerless. Then you might be told other things like people that leave AA relapse. If you don't work the steps, you'll relapse. If you slip up, you'll relapse. It is not safe to be around alcohol. If you go to an event that serves alcohol without a foolproof plan and a large support group, you're at risk to drink. 
Essentially, you are told that the world is full of danger, and if you don't constantly focus on avoiding that danger and commit to a life dedicated to being hypervigilant on that danger, that relapse is certain. No wonder so many people attending meetings are full of anxiety and eventually relapse. They are told they would, eventually believed it, and fulfilled the prophecy that was set for them. This was my case. My anxiety actually got to the point where it was worse than it was when I was drinking. I thought I always had to be on alert and not let my guard down so my alcoholism wouldn't sneak back and pounce on me at even the slightest moment of weakness. The world seems dangerous, so my world kept shrinking as I attempted to remain safe. It got so bad I was diagnosed with borderline agoraphobia, which is the irrational fear of leaving your home. I was eventually put on medication for this. The more I struggled, the more I was told I needed to dedicate my life to the program more. It works if you work it, I was told, so I worked it even harder. This needs to come first is what people told me. The idea that recovery needs to come first is not a new one, and not one that I disagree with. Anything that puts your sobriety at risk should be looked at very closely, and should be things that you consider eliminating in your life. If every time you hang out with your old friends, you relapse, then you should probably prioritize staying sober over catching up with your old drinking buddies. However, I don't think that AA should come first, which is what people were telling me when they said, this needs to come first. I talk a lot on this podcast about the importance of finding your why for getting sober and for long-term recovery and a happy life. That should be one of your primary focuses on your recovery. There was a lot of things I wanted in my new life. I wanted to be a better son. I wanted to be the friend that my friends that stood by me through my struggles deserved. I wanted to realize my potential in my career. I wanted to find someone I could grow old with, which I'm still looking for. I wanted to explore business ideas that always took a backseat to my drinking. When I talked about these big ambitions, they were often shot down. Don't make any big decisions in the first year. Don't date in the first year. You shouldn't take that promotion because you'll be working more and have less time for meetings. There were times that I was even told that I should skip things like a friend's birthday party because it conflicted with the night that I had a service commitment to make coffee, even though I had someone lined up to fill in for me. I did everything I was told. I went to a minimum of four meetings a week for over five years. I sponsored every guy that asked me to. I held multiple service commitments in my group and at the district level. I worked the steps multiple times, hoping each time I'd finally get it and stop struggling because I was told it would work if I worked it. I spoke at every meeting and conference I was asked to speak at. I went to book studies and even held book studies at my house. I worked the hell out of AA, but the harder I worked it, the worse I got. I stayed sober, but I was far from happy, joyous, and free. Something about a life dedicated to AA never sat well with me, but anytime I'd ask about it, I would be told that it was my alcoholism speaking and that people that let up often relapsed, so I kept doing what they do so I could get what they got. This became even more of an issue once I started sponsoring men and placing the same kind of demands on them. I was told to tell fathers that they need to go to 90 meetings in 90 days, even if it meant missing dinner with their kids every night. This had to come first, I would tell them. You could ask any guy I sponsored during that stage of my recovery, and they will tell you that I was fully bought into what AA was selling. But one night I realized when I was looking around the room, 
that many of us just replaced a life where we were obsessed with drinking to a life where we were obsessed with not drinking. We went from neglecting our lives on bar stools every night to neglecting our lives sitting in chairs of meetings of Alcoholics Anonymous every night. That is when I began wandering off the path a little. I started telling guys I was sponsoring to prioritize the really important things in their life. I stopped telling them to go to 90 meetings in 90 days. I told them to prioritize the things that were important in life and to find meetings that fit around that. I still bought into the idea that if you stopped going to AA, you would relapse. But I felt that AA should not take a priority over things like showing up for your kids every night and rebuilding your life. I had them draw out a life that would be so amazing that they couldn't imagine relapsing and working towards that. We still did a lot of work around fixing our past, helping other alcoholics, and working daily on being a better person. But the primary focus was no longer on dedicating our lives to the program. And the results were amazing. The guys I was sponsoring seemed to be doing better, but I was getting a lot of pushback from people in AA. I was told that I was giving directions that was putting guys I sponsored at risk of relapsing. I was even told by one highly respected person in my home group that what I was doing was going to kill the guys I was sponsoring. This is when I really started to question the program, but I was torn. On one hand, I still had the fear of relapse that had been programmed in me for so many years of going to meetings, but I knew that my mental health was in really bad shape, and I saw firsthand the results of the guys who were prioritizing building their own versions of amazing lives. Yet I couldn't quite make those same changes for myself out of the fear that was so deeply ingrained in me. I tried talking to my sponsor at the time about it. He told me that I was on a dangerous path, my doubts were my alcoholism speaking, and if I was going down this road, I was certain to relapse. He told me I needed more meetings and that I should work the steps again. I was taught not to question my sponsor, so I did what I was told. First, I'd like to say that I had amazing sponsors in my time in AA. These men supported and loved me through the biggest challenges of my life. However, I received a lot of good-hearted, well-meaning advice that simply was not good from very good people whose intentions were very good. That is the problem with sponsorship in AA. Most sponsors are not qualified to deal with the psychological aspects of addiction. As much as they wanted to help me, they are not qualified to help me through many of the things I needed to face while I was going to stay sober. According to studies done by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration, 75% of people who have substance abuse issues also report histories of abuse and trauma. There is no section of the 12-step work that specifically addresses this. There are instructions for dealing with resentments, but that section specifically instructs you to find your part in it. I was instructed by a sponsor that I'd not get over my resentments around some of my childhood trauma I experienced unless I was to find my part in it. How do you find your part in something that happened to you when you're a kid? This type of well-meaning, very damaging advice is rampant throughout the program. The big book does mention seeking outside help for problems other than alcohol, but my experience is counseling is often talked down on in meetings. I lost count of how many times I heard some version of, I tried therapy before I quit drinking. If it worked, I wouldn't be here. The advice to keep trying something that was not working, no matter how hard I tried, was some of the well-meaning bad advice I received from a sponsor. I'm not criticizing him. He is just telling me what he was taught. 
However, a lot of what is taught in meetings is things that have been passed from sponsor to sponsor without ever questioning whether what we are teaching is actually harmful advice. We're taught in AA not to question things. Take the cotton out of your ears and put it in your mouth is a phrase often used throughout meetings. Despite my growing doubts, I did what I was taught and I listened to my sponsor. I went to more meetings and I worked the steps again. I prayed to try to get connected to a higher power I had yet to discover. I kept speaking at meetings, talking up a program that I believed in less and less each day, and I kept getting sicker. Eventually, my life brought me back to Phoenix, and I seeked out a guy I knew that lived in Phoenix that I had seen speak in Sacramento one time. There was something about this man that I felt drawn to. I felt that if there was any sponsor that would connect me to what I needed in recovery, he would be the person. I was right. However, I had no idea the path he would send me down. This man had been sober since Bill Wilson was still alive. Most old-timers I had met were grumpy old people that did not seem happy with their lives, but would still say in meetings, If you want what I have, you have to do what I do. He was different. He was full of joy. He truly had what I wanted, so I followed him around Phoenix and did what he did. He was a longtime circuit speaker. For those of you who are not familiar with that, it is someone who travels around to AA conferences speaking for free. It had also been a dream of mine to one day become a circuit speaker. I love speaking and having people tell me that what I was saying in a meeting inspired them. It was how I justified speaking about a program I believed in less as time went on. I told myself that although I was struggling with the program, I was still helping other people, so it was okay if I didn't fully believe in it. I'd convinced myself it was okay because I was still doing good, so my motives were pure. One day at his house, he told me he wanted me to start going on trips and speaking with them. He was getting older, and he knew he wouldn't be around much longer, and he wanted someone to pass the torch to. He told me how much my message inspired him, and he knew I could inspire so many other people. I can't tell you how much this invitation meant to me, not only because it was something I had dreamed about doing since I was inspired by seeing someone speak at my first AA conference, but also because the man that I looked up to so much and inspired me thought I could inspire others. I was filled with gratitude, joy, and excitement. And then that pit in my stomach that I had been feeling for so long surfaced as I realized I'd be living a lie on even a bigger stage. I decided to be honest with him. As I began to confide in him about my longtime struggles with the program and the principles that it taught, he grabbed his big book and started flipping through it. I knew what was coming. He was going to start quoting me things about alcohol being cunning, baffling, and powerful. He was going to repeat a version of the people who leave AA relapse speech I'd heard every time I had voiced my doubts in the past. I braced myself for it, and then he read this passage from the book. If he thinks he could do the job in some other way, or prefers some other spiritual approach, encourage him to follow his own conscience. We have no monopoly on God. We merely have an approach that worked with us. He closed his book, and he put his hand on mine. He told me that he had known other people in similar position as mine who had continued not to listen to their conscience and kept trying to make AA work for them. Some that had even gone on to be great circuit speakers. They had all either relapsed or committed suicide. I was crying at this point. He looked up at me and said, 
I can never in my heart encourage you to continue to live a lie. I love you too much to do that to you, Tim. Go out and find the recovery that works for you. Only then will you find the peace that you are seeking. And if anyone from AA questions your decision, tell them to go read their own damn book. He gave me one of the greatest gifts anyone has ever given to me. Permission to follow my heart. And that is exactly what I did. And the results have been absolutely amazing. I didn't relapse. My life got infinitely better. And my recovery has never been stronger. So if you're asking yourself whether you could get sober without AA, I say the same thing to you. Go out and find the recovery that works for you. Seek a life that is so amazing that you no longer have the desire to drink. Learn to trust your intuition again. And most importantly, follow your heart. 